God told him, go and see this man. Wait, 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 God. You mean that guy? Yeah, yeah. I mean that guy. You mean that guy, the one who has a militia in his back pocket, who's been going town to town and arresting my friends? You mean the guy who has killed Christians just because they're Christians? You mean that guy? And God said, yeah, that guy. Go to the house where he's staying. You're the man who's going to be with him, who's going to disciple him. Are you serious? And so goes the story of a man named Ananias. We don't read a whole lot about him in the Bible. And the man, Saul, who would become known as Paul, who was murderous, who was killing Christians. I mean, you try to come up with a list of people that you would think would be your enemy. This was him. And God says to Ananias, go. And you know what crazy thing happened? Ananias actually did it. He actually did. And I think it's because he understood the teaching that we're going to dive in into today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to read this teaching that I think probably was playing in the back of the mind of Ananias when he changed the world in just a few paragraphs of scripture, but man, there was a whole story behind it. And so we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. Jesus preaches this to his disciples and a whole crowd is around there. And he takes everything and he kind of turns it upside down. And verse after verse, as we go through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we keep seeing that Jesus is going after people's hearts. Not just not just an action, but their hearts. Eric Mason said, God has never had an attitude that did not have an action. I love that. So, so Jesus is going after our hearts, after our attitudes, because he knows that's what ends up producing actions. And he's not just worried about the little actions on the outside. He wants to go very deep inside of us. So today's text, it's another tough one. We keep saying that every week. But it, it just is Matthew chapter 5, and we're going we're gonna to go through verses 38 through 48. Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the, on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, offer your coat. As well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Ah, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, catch this, so that you may be children of your heavenly Father. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
Once again, we see Jesus comparing his words not with the words just of Moses, but with the words of the Pharisees who had falsely interpreted the words of Moses. And you see this little outline I've got up here, and we did this last week and again this week. Just notice here was the Moses law. There was a law about retaliation. And the Pharisees came and they extended that law to say, hey, I can get back anybody I want to. If you do anything to me, if you scratch my eye, I get to scratch your eye. And Jesus comes and says, you've extended this, but I'm restricting it. In fact, how far does Jesus restrict the law of retaliation? To nothing. There's zero retaliation anymore in Jesus' kingdom. And then there's this law of love. And the Pharisees came and said, okay, we want to restrict that law. I only have to love my neighbor. And, and maybe even a little more specifically, the person right here and the person right here. But if you live farther than 50 feet from me, I don't have to do anything for you. And Jesus comes and he expands that law and says, no, 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 you're not interpreting this right. But God wants you to love not just your neighbor, but let's define that. Your neighbor is anybody, including your enemies. So I, I want to walk you through just a couple of quick things because we can make some mistakes with this difficult text. And so I want to help you avoid those. And then we're going to dive into how do I love my enemy? How do I do it? This is tough teaching. How do I do it? So just if you want to avoid some common mistakes with this text, just two things. One, I want you to recognize Jesus' motive. John Stott says, we can't take the four examples with wooden, unimaginative literalism. They are not given as detailed regulations, but as illustrations of a principle to uphold. The principle is love. Let, let me help you uh, understand this just a little bit. When Jesus says, give to the one who asks, do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow, we could abuse that. And Jesus was speaking specifically of retaliation. Because if a 17-year-old comes to the parents and says, can I have $10? And the parent says, well, what happened to the $10 you had yesterday? because you were supposed to spend that on gas. And the teenager says, well, I decided to have pizza instead. The parent is not obligated under this text to give $10 to the teenager. Jesus isn't talking about parenting here. Do you see where I'm saying this text can be misapplied sometimes? Uh, if if the, the church is asked to meet a need and they're able to meet that need, but then the person says, but I, I want more than that. And the church says, well, we only have this much to give, and we actually need to give some to some other people who also have needs. Then the church is not obligated to give everything they have to that person who just says, well, I want more, 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 more. Again, we can take this and apply it in a few places. What is Jesus talking about specifically? Retaliation. So that kind of helps us see, when do I apply this? I'm not trying to water down what Jesus said at all. I'm trying to unpack what Jesus said so that we can apply it well. When, when Christ says this, he's not encouraging irresponsibility or evil or addiction. And we recognize that this could be misapplied in many of those directions. Also, Jesus isn't saying that sometimes we don't need healthy boundaries. Jesus isn't talking about a, a wife who leaves an abusive husband and saying, oh, just do whatever he says. There's, there's different contexts where we need to be careful with this. Are you tracking with me where I'm just saying, let's be cautious to not just take this blanket statement that says, anybody who ever asks you, you have to give them whatever you got. 
That's not what Jesus is saying. He's talking about within this realm of retaliation. So we need to be careful there. The second is don't confuse Jesus' personal instruction with Moses' legal and civic instructions. Moses, when he said eye for eye, tooth for tooth, actually gave out a legal code for that. You would stand before a a judge. There would be witnesses involved. And so that if something had happened, you couldn't just do whatever you wanted to to retaliate. There was a guy named Lamech Lamech in the Old Testament, Genesis 4. And listen to what he says, and you'll get an idea for what kind of person he was. He said this, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. I will avenge 77 times. In other words, if you walk by and actually knock my paper off my desk, I get to break your jaw. Wait a second here. And, but that's how the Pharisees were letting this play out. They were saying, if anybody offends me, I get to offend them back. If anybody injures me or takes advantage of me, I get to do so back, and I get to hit really hard and get back at them and knock them down. And Moses came and said, no, 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 no. Let, let's let, that, let's let the, the courts handle this. It's not just you personally handling it. But let's let them handle it with witnesses and the punishment can't be greater than the crime. There needs to be some fairness here. So if somebody does injure um, your, your servant, then they've got to pay that back in a way that makes sense. So it's eye for eye. It's not eye for life. Does that make sense? So we need to be careful with that one as well. And the Pharisees just kind of had taken that license to do whatever they wanted to, anytime they wanted to. And Jesus here, he's also shifting the focus um, of the whole society. Think about God's people, how people would have heard that. For years, thousands of years, people would have thought, well, God's people means the Israelites. And they were to be a light to the nations, but you thought Israelites, the Jewish people. And here Jesus comes and says, God's people is no longer a political country with borders or born of a certain ethnicity. God's people are God's people. There's no border there. God's people, that's the church. And in the New Testament, we see this shift where suddenly God's people are the church. And that's why the church is even called the new Israel. And so there's a shift here that happens that that we need to see. So here's what we know. Jesus loved his enemies. Jesus commands us to love our enemies. The early church modeled loving enemies. So if we're not loving our enemies, we have to ask, are we really following Jesus? That's a tough question. Are we really following Jesus? I'm not saying that anybody's perfect at that. I'm not saying that you won't fail sometimes. But I'm saying, if you're not serious about this command, I wonder if you're serious about Jesus. Because Jesus was crystal clear here. To help you with this sermon, I just think we have to get really uh, tangible. We have to be very practical. So I just want to give you 15 seconds, because I think that's about all the time it will take. I want to give you 15 seconds just to think for a moment of who your enemy might be. It may not be somebody you, know, you want to kill, but somebody who frustrates you or who angers you or makes your blood boil or you would like to get revenge at some level with them, somebody you try to avoid, 
or to hurt or you want to see bad things happen to them, I'm just going to give you 15 seconds here of quietness and silence, and I'm just going to let you think. God, let me know. Oh, just give me some names, some faces of people that I might consider my enemy. Go ahead, 15 seconds. So there's four ways I want to mention this morning that can help me love my enemies, that can help you love your enemies. The first is this, prayer. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I think this can be directed in in two ways. Um, The most significant is praying for the person, but I also think we need to pray for the whole situation. It comes to mind 1 Peter 4, which, just to uh, summarize, paraphrase, says... um, If you're persecuted, make sure it's because of righteousness. And Jesus says that earlier. So if you feel that somebody is your enemy or somebody is persecuting you or on you, you need to kind of run that through a filter. And it needs to be the first question is, did I kind of have this one coming? Do I just have kind of a martyr's complex even though I've been a jerk to them and they're just being a jerk back to me? Is that really what's going on here? Is really this not about righteousness at all? It's just really about you know, like a stupid little fight that I got myself into or because I've been mean to somebody and they're mean back to me and we just need to think, is this really persecution at all? Is this really what's going on? Or actually, is it all on me here? Did I bring this on and it doesn't really, it's not really in that category and we still need to work through some stuff. But I think we need to just be praying, am I being persecuted because of righteousness or is it something else? And then... What the text says here, you pray for the person. You pray for that person who has persecuted you. Because it's a matter of the heart, right? This whole Sermon on the Mount, it's a matter of the heart. And what changes your heart? God does through prayer. So we have to pray for the people. I remember uh, being in high school, and there was this kid. I don't think that I would have ever called him my enemy, but I kind of acted like it. He wasn't a terribly mean person. He was socially kind of awkward, and he just annoyed the fire out of me. I just didn't like to be around him. You know, if I saw him coming down the hallway, I would go down another hallway. I just tried to avoid him and not be around him. And somebody challenged me with this verse. And I took them up on the offer, and I started praying for this guy. And every morning I just said, God, help this person have a good day. Help me and others to be kind to this person. And the craziest thing happened. You know what happened? A couple weeks later, I found myself kind of liking and enjoying being around him. You know what? As I look back, I don't think he changed at all. I think he was the same kid with some social oddities. (laughs) I think God changed my heart. God taught me it, it, it never was his problem in the first place. It was your problem. Your heart needed change, and when I began praying for him, that, that opened the door for God to begin changing my heart. So I want to I challenge you, don't just try to like grit your teeth through it and love people. You may have to do that sometimes, but begin praying and just watch and see what God does with your heart. See if he doesn't do a miracle in your heart. I challenge you to do that. And and when you think, well, I don't know that I can pray for that person, 
I want to just remind you that Jesus was on the cross praying for the very people who put him there. When he said, Father, forgive them, I mean, how do you pray that prayer? And if Jesus can do that then, we realize he's not just teaching this. He did this. He showed us it's possible. And in that moment, we don't hear any animosity from his voice, just love. How does that happen? It's supernatural. It's the business that God's in. The second thing, if I want to love my enemies, I have to bury my excuses. And when we say, oh, but they did this, and so I get to do this, or because they were this dumb, then I get to do this back to them. We hear, I think politicians are the classic example of this. You know, a politician gets uh, said, hey, is it true that you did this and that you stole this money from here? And they'll say, yeah, well, yeah, but, but so-and-so, I mean, they deflect real quick, but so-and-so did this, which is an interesting thing to do because think about it. At, in that moment, the politician who's been accused of something immoral has said, no, 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 they did this, so my enemy is actually the standard bearer for my moral behavior. As long as I'm just a little bit better than them, I'm okay. That's an interesting person to make the standard for your morality, is your enemy. But that's what you see politicians doing all the time, both sides, everybody. And, and Jesus comes and he says, none of that anymore. I'm your standard. Quit comparing yourself with everybody else and saying, because they did this, I get to do this. How about, because I died for you, you get to live this way now. That becomes the new standard for morality. N.T. Wright says, Jesus isn't saying you can't resist evil things, but he is saying you don't return evil with violence, with vengeance. Kyle Eidelman said, Jesus doesn't say it's wrong or somehow unacceptable to have someone who treats you as an enemy. We are to do our best to live at peace with everyone. But sometimes people insist on being an enemy. So how do you respond? Jesus doesn't say tolerate your enemies or ignore your enemies. He actually says to love them, and that's different. Wang Yi was a pastor in China who the day before he was arrested for leading a church, wrote a letter, and this is what it said. I am filled with anger and disgust at the persecution of the church by this communist regime, at the wickedness of their depriving people of the freedoms of religion and conscience. But true hope in a perfect society will never be found in the transformation of an earthly institution or culture, but only in our sins being freely forgiven by Christ and in the hope of eternal life. The calling that I have received requires me to use nonviolent methods to disobey those human laws that disobey the Bible and God. My Savior Christ also requires me to joyfully bear all cost for disobeying wicked laws. Separate me from my wife and children, ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all of these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith, no one can make me change my life, and no one can raise me from the dead. I love to hear his heart of saying he recognizes that that's an evil thing that's happening, and at the same time, he's going to choose love. And it's a, it's a hard tension to figure out, and I so respect people in his shoes who are trying to work out that 
practically. The third thing, if I want to love my, my enemies, I have to see my enemies as siblings, as brothers and sisters. I, I, I'm really concerned about what social media is doing to us. Because social media, Facebook, Twitter, and all of those things can serve a good purpose. But they also lure us to hate people we don't personally know about facts we have not seriously researched. We see that all the time. It's almost as if Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, hate your enemy. And I tell you, yeah, hate them, make derogatory comments on Facebook about them, share hateful quips, lie about them, incite others to hate when you talk with them, get other people riled up, find people on your side, and fire at them with everything you've got. It's kind of my perception sometimes of the whole social media world. It's created a dangerous place and kind of invited that in. And I want to ask you to put a filter before you're on social media, before you have a conversation with someone about maybe a politically hot topic and you're just sitting around visiting. I want to ask you to put this filter in and just ask this question. Is what I'm going to say going to encourage people to hate another human being? Or is it going to encourage them to see God's design in that human being? Which one is it going to be? Because I think that would knock out like half of Facebook tomorrow. Because so much, so much is put there, and I'm just wondering, like, why did I want to post something that would make someone else hate somebody? Do I really want to do that? Or do I believe this concept that we keep coming back to, Imago Dei, image of God, that every human being is created in the image of God? And if I believe that, it changes me. And God calls us to have a special relationship and friendship and to take special care of our brothers and sisters in Christ. But we could have another sermon where we just sit down and look that God also calls every human being our family and that he is Lord and Father to the entire earth. He wants all people to come to him and requires us to treat our brothers and sisters in Christ and people very far from God are like our brothers and sisters. Because God wants all people to come to him. And so if I treat somebody who's a believer as my enemy, well, I, I've broken half of the New Testament where God keeps saying unity in the church, unity in the church, unity in the church. But if I treat as an enemy someone who's lost and doesn't know Jesus, I'm breaking the great commission when Jesus says, go and make disciples. I'm actually pushing people away from being discipled and getting to know Jesus. So we have to treat people as siblings. When we see something, we're like, oh, how would I react if that was my brother or sister or my kid or my mom or my grandma or my grandpa or my aunt or my uncle? How would I treat them? How would I care for them? Do you get what the text said? You love your enemies so that you can be children of your Father in heaven. Because God wants us to all act like his children. Have you, parents, have you ever said, hey, kids, act like you love each other? <laughs> and I think God is saying that to us sometimes. Act like you love each other because you should. Because I love all of you. I care for all of you. The fourth way that if I'm going to love my, my neighbors, is I have to practice courageous kindness. Jesus isn't saying pretend like it never happened when somebody mistreated you. 
He's not saying be totally just passive and sit back and do nothing when something bad happens to someone. Instead, he's, he's saying be actively kind to the person who rejected you or mistreated you or frustrated you, and it's going to take courage. Let me give you a couple illustrations of how this might play out. Imagine if you were on the playground, you were in junior high, and you saw a bully on the playground start to mistreat your little sister, physically getting ready to beat her up. Would, would God have you just sit back and watch your little sister get pummeled? I don't think so. I, I think that this act of kindness would mean that you intervene. You love your sister and protect her. You get between the bully and her. And if the bully gets knocked down and pushed away so that he can't hurt your little sister, it does mean you don't start kicking him on the ground. It does mean that you don't go slash his tires when he's at the pool the next day. In fact, I think it means beyond that. Like, what would it look like if the next day at school, you ordered pizza and gave it to the bully even after you had pushed him and backed him off from your little sister the day before? You see how that would flip everything upside down? Suddenly, who's in charge of that situation? You are. Why? Because you loved like Jesus said. And you actually put him in a position to either receive your love or reject it. But I guarantee you, he's not used to being offered love. He's only used to one thing. Okay, with adults, what if a co-employee lies about you to the boss? Does, it, does, it, does this text mean that you just be like, yeah, it's true, I did it? I don't think so, because God also calls us to be honest and truthful. So when the boss calls you in and says, hey, so-and-so said this about you, is it true? I think you answer truthfully, yet also gently, not with vengeance, not, not yeah, plus here's these other 10 things I hate about this co-employee. And what, what if you knew that co-employee had recently had a baby? And what if the next day you walked by and said, Hey, I, I, I forgot that you had had a baby, and here's a gift for your baby. And then go back to your desk. Whew. You see how that would flip everything upside down? You've been attacked, but what have you done? You've allowed Jesus to take control of that situation by saying, I'm going to offer love to you, and you might reject it, or it might change your life. See, it's those kind of actions that Jesus calls us to, not just to walk away and pretend like nothing happened, but to actually be courageously kind, to do something that's radical, upside down. And that's how the early church grew. The early church grew through these extreme acts of love that people could not figure out, and it left them asking, why in the world would you do that? Because I know what I did. You see, Love like that convicts people to the core, and they want to see something different. And I know it doesn't make a difference in everybody's life, but it's made a difference in lots of people's lives. And some of you are here today because somebody showed you some courageous act of love even when you did not deserve it, especially when you did not deserve it. Jesus' illustration and personal example do not depict a weakling but a strong person whose self-control and love are powerful, upside-down power. 
Jesus gives these illustrations of if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. And in Jesus' day, a backhanded slap was like the greatest of insults to someone. I mean, that was just saying, I could care less for you, a great insult. And I wish we could see Jesus acting this out, because I almost wonder if he was smiling when he said, if they slap you, you know, give them the other also. Can you imagine getting smacked and being like, hey, you want this one too? You would probably get it, depending on how you said it. But Jesus is saying, flip it all upside down. And in their day, it was actually legal to sue someone for something like a shirt, but you weren't supposed to sue anybody and take their coat because the coat was considered necessary just for them to survive, to manage the elements. And so when they said somebody might want to sue you and take your shirt, then Jesus is saying, hey, just hand, hand your coat as well. And see, if they took your shirt and your coat, you might be left in your boxers. Imagine the embarrassment then of somebody who's taking things from you and you're like, here, just go ahead and you can have all this. You want, you need more? I mean, that would be embarrassing to the person. And they would probably say, no, 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 never mind. Or it might change them. Or they might take it and it might be embarrassing for everybody. We don't know, but Jesus is saying, be creative here. Actually go like above and beyond. And if someone forces you to go one mile, the Roman soldiers could come up beside people and they would grab a Jewish person. Uh, they don't like them. They mistreated them all the time. They say, hey, you're going to carry these two buckets I got to carry uh, plus my, my shield. And you're going to march and we're, we're going a mile all the way there. You got to go with me. And there's nothing you could say about it unless, if, if you wanted to live. You had to just say, yes, sir, and do it. But imagine that happening and picking up the soldier's buckets. And instead of being like, oh, I've really got places to be. I can't do this. Or... Uh, what cursing at them or just quietly, passively hating them, instead saying, hey, don't you need to actually go a little farther than that? Because I got time. I could actually go a couple miles with you. What? Flips everything upside down. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. Go beyond what is even necessary. Submission of the body equals freedom of the soul. It is through submission of the body that we show the freedom we have. McKnight uses the phrase moral creativity. We need to show moral creativity here. He's not saying that we take God's word and we twist it around creatively. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying is when you're trying to figure out how to love someone in a difficult situation, it's going to require a little bit of moral creativity. For instance, you're the boss. You have an employee who needs to get fired. The employee is toxic to everyone who works for you. They're toxic for the clients you're trying to serve. It's not even helpful for the employee other than maybe the paycheck. And you've done all of the right things. You've warned them. You've coached them. You've tried to help them. And they continue to just fail all of those things. And it's the right thing for you to do to fire this employee. Does this text mean you can't fire them? No, I don't think so. I think the moral creativity would be you fire the employee who needs to get fired, and then you show up at the house and say, hey, how, how can I help you? I, and, and I know that we gave you a severance package, but beyond that, this is from me and my wife. Or can, can we bring dinner over tomorrow? I mean, that might be a really tough one. I don't know. Maybe there's a creative way to show love to them. Maybe you're in a situation where your neighbor needs arrested, 
in order for the safety of that family, your neighbor needs to be arrested. Does this text mean you can't call 911? Mm-mm. I think if that family's in danger, you call 911. But how do you creatively show kindness, courageous kindness? I think even after you call and have this person arrested, it might mean you show up to that family and you say, hey, how can we help take care of you? And it might mean you go down to the city jail and pay someone a visit and just listen and care for them. That's the kind of creativity we have to have. And typically I just think, well, they deserved it. They had it coming. So I did the right thing because they deserved it. And Jesus is saying, that is not enough. Yes, there's some right things and some difficult things that you have to do in life, but you love people creatively. You, you love them beyond what you ever thought. They deserved love. And that's the kind of love that God uses to change hearts. When Ananias met up with Saul, who would later be Paul, he goes to the house and he meets him. He baptizes him. And if you know the story of the book of Acts, you read about the life of Paul. Paul changed the whole world. I mean, I don't know how it all traces back. It's hard to figure out. But some of us might be here because of Paul. <laughs> I mean, God used him in a, such a significant way. You start reading, the, most of the rest of the book of the New Testament was penned by Paul. I mean, it's incredible what God did through his life. And we got to remember, Paul was the enemy of the church. And the church loved him. And and the world was changed. The church was changed. Paul was changed because Ananias loved his enemy. Because Ananias actually believed that what Jesus said needed to be obeyed, even when it made zero sense. It wasn't common sense to do this. It flew in the face of common sense. But it changed everyone. And we think about when Jesus said, you know, if you get slapped, turn the other cheek. What happened to Jesus later in his life? Was he struck? Yeah. Did he resist? Did he resist any of that? No. What about Jesus' clothes? Did somebody take his shirt? Yeah. And his coat? Yeah. His clothing? Yeah. That's how he was crucified. Did somebody force him to go a mile? Not sure exactly how far he walked, but yeah, he walked with the cross on his back as far as it took, as far as he needed to. See, Jesus actually lived out these very words at the end of his life, the life he was giving for us before the crucifixion, during the crucifixion, after his resurrection. And when we read this text, if you're like me, your first kind of read through and you're reading like, God, I can't resist an evil person. I have to love my enemies. Man, this is terrible news, God. And then we see what God did for us. See, we were the enemies to God. We treated God like an enemy. And God said, I still love you. I still care for you. And I'm offering salvation to you. And suddenly this text that seems so daunting, seems so rough, seems so terrible to try to obey, suddenly it's the best news in the whole world that Jesus loves us even when we were his enemies, 
and he calls us now his children. This morning, we're going to sing some more, worship some more, have some quiet time, have communion a little while, and we just want to invite you to give thanks to the Lord, who is your friend and your father, and we also just, maybe you need to have some time today thinking, how can I love, how can I pray for, how can I care for my enemies and let God do a miracle in my heart and in our relationship and maybe even in their heart too. And just to see what God begins to do through us. If you would, would you stand up? And if you would like someone to pray with you, we'll have some folks here on the front row that would just love to quietly pray with you. If you need to kneel down and just spend this time praying and asking God to convict you of some things, you can feel free to do that. Uh, We want to be available to walk with you, pray with you during this time. God, we say thank you for forgiving us, and we were your enemies, and we ask you to change our lives, even in this very moment. In Jesus' name, amen.